3: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the CNBC special Taking Stock. I'm Eamon Javers. Jim is off tonight. Mortgage rates topping 7% today. Rates haven't been consistently above 7 for a long time. A senior Fed official said he's firmly in favor of sticking with quarter-point rate hikes. Stocks started the day off day slowly, but took off following those comments. The Dow climbing more than 330 points, on pace to break a four-week losing streak. The S&P and Nasdaq snapping two-day losing streaks, both climbing around three tenths of a percent. Major indexes all turning positive for the week, but will investors soon feel the downside of higher rates? It has to happen at some point, right? Plus, tonight, the intersection of Washington and Wall Street. China in the spotlight on Capitol Hill this week as pressure to beef up investment restrictions takes center stage. One of the star witnesses from this week's dramatic primetime China hearing will be here with us tonight. And the White House making a big call for big tech when it comes to cybersecurity. CEO of Splunk is going to join me here to explain what it all means. But let's start with the markets and bring in CNBC's own Mike Santoli to break down today's trading. Mike, what happened out there today?
1: Well, Eamon, you know, one month ago today was the year-to-date high for this market. Very strong January, culminated on February 2nd. That was also when Treasury yields bottom. They hit about a three or four month low at that point and have been racing higher since then. So the stock market has been pulling back in the shadow of that move higher in yields, which has come along with this idea that the Federal Reserve is going to have to keep ratcheting up short-term rates beyond what was anticipated at the beginning of the year. So those comments by Atlanta Fed President Bostic did give a little bit of a glimmer of hope that they're still going to be on a measured pace out there. Uh, I don't think it settled anything. We're still you know, down some 5% or so from that high about a month ago It still seems like a routine pullback, but there were a couple of other elements I think you can point to, which was strong results from Salesforce, uh, which did also come along with an outlook that the margins were going to expand this year. That was good for more than 100 points uh, on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which was up about 400. So you had a couple of pockets of strength in there uh, and some give and take on the consumer side uh, with Macy's doing well. Best by giving some back, but mostly I think it's about when are yields going to stop climbing and when can we see the end of what the Fed has to do in terms of restraining this economy.
3: Mike, can you explain for viewers who might not really understand this why those comments from Bostick moved the market the way they did? I mean, you might think if the Fed's signaling, hey, look, we're going to have to keep raising rates, more or less indefinitely. That's bad news. That means that they don't necessarily have inflation under control. They're going to have to keep pouring on the more medicine, more medicine into the sick patient. Uh, And yet
1: we saw this rally today. So explain that. Absolutely. More is definitely uh, something that the investors don't want to see in terms of even more Fed medicine. On the other hand, there was this expectation building in recent weeks that the next meeting, in March, March uh, like 21st, or the end of this month, was likely to, or perhaps going to be a half point increase. So Bostic coming out and saying, even though we got a strong jobs number for January, even though inflation has been stickier at higher levels than we'd prefer, we're still going to stick to the anticipated course of quarter point rate hikes. So relative to what investors were fearful of the moment before he spoke, this seemed like a slight relief.
3: So we were afraid and now we're a little bit less afraid. Uh, exactly. Mike, stick around here because let's bring in some more voices from the markets to dig deeper into today's moves. Joining us now are Quincy Crosby, chief global strategist for JPL Financial, and Jeff Kilberg, founder and CEO of KKM Financial and a CNBC produce, uh, contributor. Uh, Quincy, let me start with you. Uh, you know, you just heard Mike explain that the market was afraid of what it might hear and then, you know, not so afraid. Is that how you read it?
4: Exactly. I mean, you could see it in the, in the market. It moved, it moved almost instantaneously. Granted, it was the algorithms that kicked in, you know, immediately. But the market kicked in and, and retail traders came in and investors came in thinking, hey, this this is good news, because remember something. Bostick was the one when we entered the new, new year thinking that would there, there'd be only maybe two rate hikes this, this year. He said, well, you know, we are going to keep rates higher for the whole year. And he depressed the market back then. And now he seems to be uh, the optimist in the market. Christopher Waller spoke today, too. And he said, well, you know, we'll have to see. It'll be data dependent.
3: Jeff, I've got a question for you that might be a little naive here. I mean, we've got this next Fed meeting coming up at the end of this month. Uh, you know, is there anything in the markets in terms of fundamentals, profits and losses, things that companies will do which will dominate our attention more than the Fed this month? Or is this going to be all about waiting for the Fed and watching for these signals each day as we see which speaker says what thing and what that indicates about the future?
5: It, it is remarkable, well, yeah, I mean, Amen. Got,
3: it- Sorry, that one's for Jeff. Go ahead, Jeff.
5: No, I think it's remarkable. You bring up a great point. I think Mike really hit on it. It's this pendulum that continues to swing too far in sentiment. So we got all excited about a potential Fed pause or potentially, you know, some type of breathtaking coming out. And today, Bostic was not by any means dovish, but he was the first measured person to say that we're going to stay on course. We're not going to let the latest data in inflation, which was hotter than expected, really derail us. So I think we have to take a big, deep breath as investors. But what's fascinating about today is that when we saw this Bostic comment, which certainly did kick in the algos and we moved the market higher, but it lined up with the 20-day moving average. So when you see this much emotion in the market, the trader, which, you know, started me in the 1990s, the trader comes out and really focuses on the fact that you have to remove some of that emotion and focus on the technicals. So the fact that we closed above the QA and moving average in the S&P 500 lines up with the fact that we are in a trading range. So I think we have to remain calm, costly optimistic, and to your point, the earnings season, it's been better than expected. I know it's been bifurcated, certainly we've had some disappointments, but by and large, there's a lot of strength in the consumer. We're seeing that in some of the retailers this week, not all of them, but nonetheless, I think once we get through this next Fed meeting, I think we'll have the ability, and I envision actually, Amen, to see some of this inflationary data really abate, really fall down, if we get that, That does give some cover for the Fed to finally remove that uber-bearish, hawkish type of sentiment they're putting out there.
3: Remain calm. That's always good advice. Mike, jump in here. I know you have a couple of questions you want to ask, too.
1: Well, I guess uh, I would ask, really, Quincy, I mean, what is your premise right now in terms of whether, in fact... Um, the Fed is going to have to do more than the economy can absorb. Because it's one of those things where, we, with the economy being stronger than anticipated coming into this year, is certainly a positive thing. Uh, it's something that probably explains why things like, you know, consumer discretionary stocks and industrials are holding up well, and some of the safer sectors, so to speak, are, are falling by the wayside. But just exactly how much can the Fed do before we get all these leading indicators of, of, of recession turning into an actual recession?
4: Well, that, well, that's obviously the fear. And, you, and what you're seeing is, you know, the yield curve uh, inversions remain intact, not just here, but in, in Germany, for example. There's a, there's a concern that if they go too far uh, with the rate hikes, they are going to push us into a recession as opposed to even a mild recession, which could be seen as a softish landing, so to speak. But that's the concern. or I think it's the concern that the Fed has as well. But the Fed has to move us towards price stability. It's the mandate, it doesn't mean necessarily 2%, maybe they get to 2.5%, but they're going to do it. And you know the fact is that the prices in the um, ISM manufacturing report, although the, the headline number was actually a little bit better than the last number, still, still in contraction territory, but prices paid was about 52, 53, meaning that it's expanding. We'll get another sense with the uh, service sector, which is the largest portion of the economy, and see what that has to say in terms of prices paid. This is the issue. You've got wages still high. You've got prices that are climbing. They're moving in the wrong direction. The Mm -hmm. Fed doesn't want to see that.
1: Yeah. And certainly the market uh, has had a pattern of over anticipating when things were going to uh, actually become a little more friendly on the inflation front in the last year or so. Jeff, uh, I'm interested in uh, in exactly how you would frame out this trading range that you that you see here. Uh, Agree with you that the market, you know, kind of right on time with that 200 day average did manage to find some support. Does that mean that this is the lower end of the range or is it a wider band than that?
5: I believe this is the lower end of the range, Mike, and I think we're continuing to see higher lows. And what's fascinating to see is that the 10-year note, yes, it's about 4%. I think the air is very thin to stay above 4% in the 10-year. Therefore, I think it's going to come back down. Once we get a better feeling, if there is really... Movement down in inflation, and if we do see the Fed, what's fascinating, when no one's really talking about in the Fed, Mike, and I know we talk about the terminal rate all day long, but look at their balance sheet. Their balance sheet is still $8.4 trillion. I like to look through that lens because that really provides a safety net, that liquidity, that big balance sheet is really the shock absorber in any type of landing, soft, hard, medium, but nonetheless, I think the Fed is going to really, by design, keep That inversion that Quincy talked about, that inversion has really helped the cost of capital go up, counterintuitive, right? The Fed took forever to get inflation above their 2% target. Now they're scrambling to get it anywhere near under 4%. So I think the Fed is continuing to be in a conundrum here, but they're not going to fall and push into recession. I know we're talking about price cuts or interest rate cuts later in the year, I don't foresee that happening. But I think we're going to see one more rate hike, and they're going to pause, sell their hands, and be measured, like Bostic. It's great to have Bostic in the room. We need more Bostic and less uh, hawkishness.
3: Hey, Jeff, let me ask you a question. You talk about the idea of inflation going down. Where are you looking for indicators that that's happening? I mean, are there particular commodity prices that you're thinking about uh, where you're going to see that start to tail off and say, okay, this is moving? And how much do you think it needs to move to really impact the market? And people say, hey, wait, this is permanent.
5: Well I think the inflation component is more in housing than in autos. But yes, we always look at the commodities, look at the price of oil, W2I kinda of hanging in there at $75. But when you look at copper, Dr. Copper has always been a great bellwether to look at to get a better understanding of demand. Certainly with China, you know, they saw their manufacturing activity the most robust and the fastest expansion in over a decade. So will that reopening kind of help that global inflation? Possibly, but I think you have to really look at housing. Housing has really had a substantial move lower because that cost of capital we talk about, now you're seeing the 30-year mortgage float back above 7%. That's very damaging to the buyer, but that lack of buyer, that lack of demand should help bring down inflation, which was way out of control as we saw rates too far, too long, too low for all those years.
3: Jeff, I can tell you that out in the suburbs where I live, that 7% number, the, the mortgage rates, that's like what everyone is talking about. That, it's there's like a Christmas psychological night. impact to that, right? It's it's fascinating to watch it play out. Mike, Quincy, Jeff, that's all the time we have uh, for right now. But thank you all for your expertise. Really appreciate it. As we head to break, take a look at the after hours action in Broadcom. Shares on the move after reporting results. The details of those numbers coming up next. We're just getting started on this CNBC special, Taking Stock.
2: Tonight on Taking Stock, uncertainties abound. Broadcoms caught the eye of regulators. Is the VMware right. deal at risk? Plus, oh, we have much to discuss. Congress has pulled docket on China, and extra, extra, read more about it. Retail earnings ahead when we return.
6: Take your business further with a smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.
2: Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving.
3: And welcome back. Checking on shares of Broadcom and VMware, both of which just reported earnings after the bell today. Broadcom moving higher after beating on earnings and its forecast. VMware also on the move upwards. The two names have been in focus amid regulatory warnings from the EU over Broadcom's intended purchase of VMware. So our own Christina Parts is here with more. Christina, explain what's going on here.
7: Well, I just got off the phone. It was yeah. a, a long one. And Broadcom's acquisition of VMware is still, unfortunately, up in the air, given, like you said, EU uh, regulators' antitrust concerns. But CEO Hawk 10 of Broadcom said he believes the review timeline will actually take a little longer, but expects the transaction to actually close in fiscal 2023. So he's still optimistic. Broadcom, for those who don't know, makes chips in data centers for networking, as well as AI chips that help speed up computing power. On tonight's earnings call, the CEO said generative AI, because that's what everyone is talking about. That's what gets the algos going when they're talking. He said it's barely starting to kick off this year and has really seen a jump in demand just within the last 90 days or so. Also, there's a lot of chips news today, so I got to get through it. Also, our own Scott Wapner broke the news that investor Third Point, so I'm switching gears completely, took a passive stake in AMD. So this is a stock that pretty much trades about 30 times forward earnings. It doesn't yeah, that seem one,
3: that one had the uh, newsroom buzzing today when Scott broke that news. Know, Everybody was sort of riveted to the screen. Yeah, and watching. you did see the What's stock the price
7: definitely uh, jump right after that. Yep. They took a passive uh, position in it, but uh, this is a company that has a forward P of like about 29, 30 times, and it used to be 50. So it's it doesn't seem like a bargain, but still. It's Dropped dramatically and it could really benefit from a a data center AI and gaming turnaround timing that always in the market is going to be incredibly clutch lastly one story I want to end with within the chip space and this has to do with several names that plunged on Tesla's promise to remove rare earth materials from future generation cars so the EV maker Tesla wants to cut silicon carbide use by 75% silicon carbide chip producers like ON, STM, Wolfspeed, all fell today dramatically more than 5% or more. And even though Tesla, and you can just see on your screen there, that was the, the close for all of those, um, Tesla didn't provide any specific timeline on when they were really? going to, to drop the silicon carbide. That's unusual for Tesla. <laughs> I know, but that was the, that was the <laughs> running theme. And there was a viewer, and we have wonderful viewers that comment, Tesla said that they're going to drop the carbide by 75%. You had a huge reaction in those stocks, but Tesla provided no details, and then there wasn't that much of a reaction in Tesla's stock price, despite the ambiguous uh, investor day yesterday.
3: But if Tesla's changing the components that go into the vehicle, pre- presumably they're going to be able to save some money here, right? Yeah, if
7: they can actually follow through with If this. they can do it. And I, I say if because if you remove silicon carbide and a lot of it, you're compromising the structure of a car. Why? Because you want two things. You want longer range, you want a stronger uh, battery. You need silicon carbide for that. Right now it costs anywhere between $500 and $600 in a car. They want to drop it down to maybe 125 and to your point that could I guess obviously help the price point So So if you're
3: saving about $500 a car are we going to see that price show up in the price of the car? I mean, Tesla's been slashing prices I, I, already. They would have to do that, right? Hurting their EV competition,
7: like Wolfspeed. or
3: they send it right to the bottom line and help shareholders.
7: Oh, well, this is a question that I guess I can only I can't predict it, but I can we can only answer Call a few Elon years, a few years from now when they actually follow through with it if they're able to reduce it by at least $400 per car and then make that decision. But yeah. they're good. I think the competition is just going to continue to ramp up. Uh, Wolf Speed just announced not too long ago that they're joining forces with GM, same kind of uh, products silicon carbide. So uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that Tesla's taking that, that position.
3: It's yeah, so fascinating to watch the price curve on those Teslas start to come down. And they're a little bit ahead of their competition in terms of what they can put out there, just the volume, mm-hmm. the experience they have. Bringing those prices down is going to force everybody else to respond. And you've got this like spiral of price down. Consumers benefit. But does Tesla win?
7: Well, if, you can, if you're comparing it to Rivian and the cash burden with Rivian, I'm sure Tesla would still come out positive. Wall Street Journal wrote a great piece about that. But... Um their bottom line. I, I yeah, you know, maybe maybe we'll see. yeah. The I answer guess is the, we'll, see. Yeah, we'll see, right? To safe bet. We'll yeah, see. <laughs> absolutely.
3: Christina, thank you so thank much. You. Really appreciate it. And coming up, rare agreement in Washington D.C. following the primetime debut of the House China Select Committee earlier this week. That seems like a good thing, right? But maybe not because of what they agreed on. If you're an investor, you might not love so what that means for the future of the US China relations and the companies doing business there, that's coming up when this CNBC special, Taking Stock, returns.
7: Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget.
6: When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. Welcome back.
3: I'll tell you what, what we saw in Washington this week was something we almost never see. Leaders of both parties admitting that Washington got it wrong for decades when it came to trade with China. It was the first primetime hearing of the brand new House Select Committee on China. The argument was that the very idea that fueled trade with China over the past 30 years was that free trade will make America uh, will make China more like America was literally backwards. Instead, they argued it's made America more like China.
8: Leaders across the private sector, in academia, industry, and finance, as well as in the public sector, across multiple administrations and congresses, clung to the assumption that China, having been welcomed into the international system, would play by the rules, and as China prospered, would liberalize its economy and its form of governance reality proved otherwise.
3: And as a result, the phrase on everybody's lips was decoupling, separating the U.S. and Chinese economies. But is that even possible right now? Let's take a look at how that decision is going to impact U.S.-China trade policy with Wendy Cutler. She's the vice president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Wendy, I'm sure you were riveted to this hearing as I was this week. And you just wonder at this point where we've had so many decades of globalization. Now we're talking about decoupling, which is really deglobalization. Do
9: you think that's even possible? Well, it's not possible across both economies. But what is possible is what I would call strategic decoupling. In those sectors that are key to national security and economic security, you take measures to reduce your reliance, for us to reduce our reliance on China, for example and seek other trading partners, as well as boost our manufacturing at home. So that's a trend I think we're going to see, but I don't think we're gonna see complete, um, you know, disintegration between both of our economies. They're way too integrated.
3: I mean, it reminds me, who, who was a celebrity who had that idea of conscious uncoupling, right? I mean, are we consciously <laughs> uncoupling with China here? And, and how do we even do that? So put yourself in the, in the shoes of a CEO and think about where your supply chain is right now. What are the first two or three things you do after watching that hearing this week and saying, hey, wait a second, the winds are changing in Washington. Now we need to change our
9: whole approach
3: to supply chain.
9: What what do you even do? Well, the first thing any company needs to do is to map out its supply chains and to know exactly where all the parts and inputs and materials are coming from and then identify choke points in areas where there are vulnerabilities. And in those cases, think of either um, moving those parts out of China or creating redundancy, what's called a China plus one strategy.
3: But the the timeline on this could be ridiculous, right? I mean, just so postulate the, the sort of worst case scenario that everyone's worried about, which is that China decides that they're gonna go into Taiwan and you get a shooting war in Taiwan. On that day, at that first hour, that's gonna be a nightmare for American companies. And you wonder, a giant company like Apple, for example, which has huge markets potentially in China, huge manufacturing dependence on China, is a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, in your view, an existential threat to a company as big as Apple?
9: Well, it, it's it's a huge threat, not only to Apple, but you know, to the US economy, to the global economy, et cetera. Um, I think, again, it's not like these companies overnight are waking up to this. There's been a trend and there's been discussions in Washington about decoupling now back to the Trump administration. So I think many companies, particularly companies like Apple, are already beginning to take steps. And we've seen them move some of their manufacturing already to India in particular. Um, many companies, frankly, are are staying quiet um, about their efforts to move out of China, um, not wanting to bring attention to themselves, um, to, to, to these shifts to the Beijing authorities.
3: Yeah. Some of the numbers uh, I think that you provided to our team today on just where we are with Chinese trade is fascinating to me because, you know, even as Washington is talking about, you know, decoupling or consciously uncoupling, whatever we decide we're going to call it, uh, the end of globalization, say uh, trade to China between China and the United States is increasing. Right. So the people who are actually living in the economy, doing the business are doing more, not less. Is that right?
9: well 2022 record year in us china trade with about 700 billion dollars worth of goods moving between the two countries um including agriculture manufacturing that's incredible
3: to me after the pandemic and amid the tension with taiwan and all the tension in washington and everything we're seeing how is that possible that
9: that numbers are that number still going up well, there are a lot of things we're still trading. Um, frankly, inflation—you um, know—these th- are num- these th- This is based on value, so some of these numbers are um, jacked up because of inflation. And also, I think we're still in kind of this um, COVID kind of um, buying spree, where right. there's a lot of demand for the types of products that um, China produces. But I think that this will be the record year and that the trend is going to be going down 2023 um, and onward. I think this is a banner year.
3: So do the people who are actually buying and selling and and sending container ships across the Pacific Ocean look at that hearing that we saw in Washington earlier this week and say, hey, wait a second, we've got to change the way we do business? Or are those timelines on totally different tracks? And and people doing business right now say, look, i got to get a container in this quarter. Forget Washington. I, i got to do business.
9: Well, again, it really depends what sector you're in, and a lot of the, you know, this goods trade we're talking about are, are in areas that really are not um, strategic products, whether it be soybeans or toys or bicycles um, or, um, you know, chemicals, etc. So, um, my view is it really depends on the sector, but I think you put your finger on an important point. There is like a timeline issue here. It took us 20 odd years to integrate with the Chinese economy um, and to benefit from globalization or, you know, to be hurt by globalization. And you can't unwind this overnight. It's going to take time. And that means there will be vulnerabilities. There will be instances where our companies are going to be presented with, you know, measures that they're going to have to, um, you know, um, let's say they'll be faced with regulations from both countries that they're going to need to abide to um, immediately. And
3: CEOs are, are in an impossible position as a result in many cases. Wendy Cutler, this is a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your expertise tonight. Really appreciate it. Let's continue this discussion with one of the star witnesses at that congressional hearing this week. Joining us now is Alliance for American Manufacturing President Scott Paul. Scott, I was watching you at that witness table this week, and I wonder if you had the same thought that i I did, which is that this hearing sort of represents a sea change in elite Washington thinking. You had this sort of Washington consensus for so many decades that doing business with China was a great idea because that will make China more like America. You'll develop a middle class. You'll develop entrepreneurs. It'll be a democratizing thing. And instead, you know, the argument that I heard in that hearing was actually it's it's making the United States more like China in some ways, sitting at that table, did you feel like this was sort of a pivot point in Washington thinking?
8: Eamon, thanks for having me on. It clearly was. I mean, I've been working on these issues for three decades. I've never seen the amount of attention that was paid to US-China trade uh, that we saw the other night. Uh, And there's a reason for that. Uh, We're now approaching crisis mode. And I think the concern about escalating tensions with respect to Taiwan, I think a renewed focus on ESG and the role that's playing. And does that stop at U.S. borders or does it extend to China? Uh, The conversations we're having about carbon reduction, uh, the supply chain issues that companies, global companies were facing in the pandemic, has them rethinking both uh, risk uh, and also uh, their, their strategies with respect to sourcing. So there's a harmonic convergence, I think, of events that have led to this, in addition to the fact that it's clear that both Republicans and Democrats understand that appealing to communities in the heartland uh, is pretty important to their political future as well yeah,
3: you, you talk about a harmonic convergence. I'm going to mix my musical metaphors here. But it did feel like you saw, you know, Democrats and Republicans singing from the same hymnal there., uh, you know sure. talking about the same kinds of issues striking in such a divided uh, na- nation's capital that you would see Democrats and Republicans working together l- like that. A couple of moments where, you know, they couldn't quite resist taking jabs at each other. You saw that break through. Um, but I wonder if you see, from where, from where you were sitting at that witness table, if you saw a difference between the way Democrats are approaching this issue and the way uh, Republicans are approaching it. They're, they're, they're not entirely in sync here, right?
8: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point. I think, I think everybody kind of agrees on the diagnosis of the challenge. OK. So I, th- I think there's fundamental agreement about that. But... Uh, I think that there are nuances in terms of how to approach that. And, you know, if you were watching the hearing, you saw that. I think Democrats uh, would tend to prefer uh, investment in our own economy uh, and competitiveness measures, uh, things like the CHIPS Act and infrastructure and the clean energy manufacturing investments uh, as the focus Ah, uh, Republicans. Uh, I think it, it it went back for some of them to deregulation and taxation; to others, uh, d- d- doing that decoupling uh, from 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 Beijing. Uh, but I also think that there's a lot of possibility for common agreement here, uh, and uh, I think you know investment in China, outbound investment review is one of those. I do think that some some limited trade enforcement action uh, is a, is a piece of that puzzle as well uh, but you are correct that uh, i think that you know the legislative process is messy uh philosophy politics will certainly impact that in some way but the fact that this select committee was stood up uh and that it does have such a high profile and i will say i think it has very serious members on board uh that don't want to grandstand but do want to make progress And both, I think, the the chairman, uh, Mr. Gallagher from Wisconsin, and the ranking member, Mr. Krishnamoorthy from Illinois, I I think are known as being pretty pragmatic uh, and high intellect, low ego, which is kind of what you need uh, to make progress in that kind of environment.
3: Let me ask you about that point you just raised on outbound investment, because I think a lot of folks at hedge funds, venture capital, private equity inside the United States maybe haven't really focused on this yet. But there is a rumor that the Biden administration is going to have an executive order on outbound investment, investment from American capital organizations into China that's going to be much more restrictive on the kinds of things you can finance in China so as not to take American capital and finance the rise of China. What do you think that EO, that executive order, is going to look like if we get there? They've been talking about it for a long time. We haven't seen it yet.
8: Yeah, it's it's a good question. I don't know what it's going to look like. Uh, I can tell you what I think it should look like. I, I do think that it should be more than screening. I think there should be restrictions. I think it could be crafted towards... Uh, strategic sectors. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that, but uh, there's been a lot of resistance to this, which is why it's been delayed, as well. And it is—I don't pretend like it's an easy issue to solve. It's complex because there have been, you know, as I articulated in my testimony, you know, well over a trillion dollars of U.S. investment in China to date, and there's over a hundred billion dollars every year, and so this isn't a trivial matter. Uh, but the question is going to be, you know, what what kinds of investments are being made in China that are going to result in technology transfer or loss of critical capabilities uh, in the United States. And look, we've seen that with the semiconductor technology restrictions already. Those were incredibly effective, profound, uh, enlisted allies in that. So I do think that we'll see something. Uh, I think the the strength uh, and the scope of it are the items. But here's another area where I think there's an appetite on Capitol Hill. And so folks are going to be watching the Biden administration. uh, And if Republicans and Democrats don't think that it goes far enough, it's going to ramp up the pressure uh, for legislative action.
3: Scott, let me ask you a similar question that I just asked Wendy, which is on the timing of all this. This is a little bit like bankruptcy, right? I mean, it goes very, very slowly and then it goes very, very quickly. Um, You wonder about an event, an X-factor event out there, like a Ukraine-scale thing between China and Taiwan. It's, it's a scary, nightmarish situation for a lot of human reasons. But on a business level, you wonder if that's an existential event for big American companies if suddenly they can't do business in China because there's a, there's a military conflict going on there. Do you see particular companies that are going to have significant difficulty just continuing to operate if that happens in Taiwan?
8: Well, I think that's a great question. And you know, if there if you're in the microelectronics sector, um, or the consumer electronics sector, you've got some exposure, uh, most likely, uh, in, in Taiwan or to shipping that's that's going through that area as well that could be profoundly impacted. And Eamon, we've seen kind of a preview of this with respect to the pandemic, when everything closed down and you saw what happened to uh shipping or factories or what have you, and the shock that that led to in our economy. Uh, And that was incredibly difficult to absorb. And so if there is a, you know, if there's many lessons coming out of that, but I think one of them, certainly for global companies, is that you have to diversify your supply chains. Uh, You have to look at getting out uh, of areas where you think that there is a high level of risk. Uh, And the irony to me, Eamon, is I see some of these consulting firms that encouraged companies to outsource to China in the 90s and the aughts, now saying, hey, we can help you bring your (laughs) business back to- uh, We sold you the business on the way out.
3: We'll sell you the business on the way, and it's billable hours either way. Scott, uh, maybe a cynical way to end it, but thank you for your expertise here. I really, really appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Meanwhile, don't go anywhere. There's much more ahead on this CNBC special, Taking Stock.
2: Coming up, secret shopper, what retail earnings reveal about the state of the consumer? Plus, opening bell, closing bell, dinner bell, feast on three stocks we're serving up next. And the Splunk CEO checks in for an enterprising tour around tech when we return. Welcome
3: back. Retail taking center stage this week as more companies report results. Nordstrom and Costco, two retailers making moves after the close. So what do the latest retail results say about the bigger retail picture and the state of the consumer? Maybe a little retail therapy. Melissa Repko is here. Melissa.
0: Hey, Eamon. So we heard from a long list of retailers this week, including Best Buy, Macy's and Nordstrom. And they say they're seeing a consumer become more mindful about what they put in their shopping cart. Earlier today, Kroger CEO Rodney McMullen said, quote, What customers are telling us, they're already behaving like they're in a recession. Retail leaders are citing rising interest rates more on investor calls, along with inflation. We have some fresh data showing that it's on consumers' minds, too. About 61% of consumers surveyed in mid-February by Morning Consult for CNBC said the Federal Reserve's decision to raise interest rates impacted their spending and personal finances. That same survey found consumers are more likely to cut back on spending at restaurants and bars no. and clothing and large household purchases are also vulnerable. About 40 percent of respondents said they would trim back in those areas. So what does that mean for retailers? That means they may be seeing some slower sales. And I spoke to Macy's CEO, Jeff Gannett, today, and he said they're already seeing that show up for big ticket items like mattresses and furniture. And he directly attributed that to slower housing sales.
3: Because if you're not buying the house, you don't need the new bed, you don't need the couch, the stuff for the den, all that.
0: Exactly. It has sort of a domino effect.
3: Melissa, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. And coming up, Tesla was the worst performer in the S&P today. Salesforce was the day's top Dow performer. And Silvergate Capital hit a new 52-week low. We'll dig into how to trade all of those stocks coming up next. And welcome back. It's time for a three stock dinner. We're tracking three of the day's biggest movers and digging deeper into how to play them. So joining me now is Ava Ados, chief investment strategist at ER shares. Uh, Let's start with Tesla. Uh, That stock falling five point eight percent today after the company's investor day. Ava, you own this stock. So what do you think?
10: We do own it, but it's an underweight. We like the fact that Tesla has increased their margins by 450% in the last five years, and at the same time, they increased their revenues by 50% for each of these years. Now, this is unprecedented for a publicly listed company of that size, but it is an underweight for us currently, and the reason is that it's high valuation. If you take the seven key car manufacturers, you put them together, you add 50% to that, then you get the valuation of Tesla. And that valuation is only justified if we're speaking about an extraordinary company. If you're speaking about a good or average company, the valuation is not justified. And we all know it's not only about cars, it's much more. But once that margin between them and the average car manufacturing company uh, shrinks, then they have a lot of downside potential. And I think yesterday they did not present themselves as an extraordinary company.
3: I love how you refer to Elon Musk there as a potentially distracted leader. I mean, that's maybe the polite way of putting it. Uh, next up, Salesforce Salesforce is notching its best day since 2020 after a big earnings beat and better than expected guidance. Ava, this is your number one weighted stock. So what's your take on the quarter?
10: That's right. We've owned them for many years. We recently moved them to our number one. I think that's what helped us with our performance. A year to date in the last three months we're at the top one fund when it comes to large cap funds. And so I like the company. We had activist investors come in. That's uh, good news for us because the CEO compensation was elevated. So there will be additional oversight here. And I like the fact that their margins, their EB down margin increased by 8.5% from the last quarter. And we saw their earnings before tax increased by four to five times from the previous quarter. I think they're positioned for strong performance going forward.
3: And lastly, this one was a dramatic one today. Silvergate Capital plummeting almost 60% today after delaying its annual report. Ava, how would you approach this name given what we saw there today?
10: Um, I'm I'm not a fan of them. I think they're a troubled bank holding company. Um, uh, They're uh, providing speculative bank services to crypto companies. And I think they're in the middle of a death spiral. Their survival is at risk. I think uh, when you see even they are not certain about their survival, which means that we're seeing key customers now leaving them. We saw Coinbase leave them. And once you lose these customers, it's impossible or very tough to get them back. So I'm very concerned. We also saw one billion dollar, dollar twist. They went from having 75 million in profits to having 950 million in losses within a year. Uh, I, I think their future uh, is, is at risk here.
3: Whenever you say the words death spiral, that's probably not a good sign, Ava. Great stuff tonight. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.
11: Thank you.
3: And coming up, big tech coming under scrutiny in Washington as President Biden looks to place cybersecurity responsibilities on companies, not consumers. We'll discuss that with the CEO of Splunk coming up next. And welcome back, big tech facing a big test this week as the Biden administration asks Congress to pass a bill imposing legal liability on software makers which fail to meet basic cybersecurity standards. Now the administration says the cybersecurity burden lies too much on individual users and small organizations. So what does this move mean for the cybersecurity sector? Gary Steele is president and CEO of Splunk, and he joins us now. Gary, thank you so much for being here. First of all, if you could walk us through what it is that the Biden administration actually said this week and what they're changing.
11: Yeah, they basically have issued their cybersecurity strategy, um, and they're really doing what they can to try to raise the visibility and importance of cybersecurity as it relates to the U.S. government, critical infrastructure, and how to better defend Americans. Um, it covers a, a broad-reaching set of topics, uh, one being better cooperation between the private sector and the public sector. It covers uh, broader cooperation uh, amongst governments, which we could all, all also use some improvement on. And as you described, um, it puts more responsibility on the part of tech uh, to ensure that um, individuals are well protected.
3: But the place where the rubber meets the road here is on this liability issue, right? Like, are the comp- who is liable for the cybersecurity damages? And, and ultimately, our company is going to be on the hook for that. I, one of the questions I have, my understanding is there's like a 10 year time horizon for implementing that. So we could be well into, you know, the second Buttigieg term or the second DeSantis presidential term uh, by the time this actually hits the real world. So if you're an investor right now and you're looking at, okay, the liability burden is shifting, Uh, onto the companies. How do you think about that when the time horizon is that
11: long? Yeah, a couple points. I think one thing that this um, strategy really highlights is the importance to raise security posture across all businesses. So I think this will put pressure on companies and put pressure on boards to continue to invest in cybersecurity, to raise the overall capabilities and protection. So I view that as a as a CEO in the cyber industry, I view that as a positive for our business. And then as you describe um, the long tail on what does this actually look like? When do those responsibilities ultimately take effect? That's a big question. Like what does regulation coming out of Congress ultimately look like? That That's a longer term question. Yeah. Now, all companies, I think, on the big tech side, we're all working aggressively to ensure that we're, we're well protected. It's an ongoing journey, but there's I think everyone has to take this seriously.
3: When we just had a list of the, the companies who are your clients up on the screen. When you talk to them this week uh, and you talk to those clients, what do you tell them they need to know about what changed this week?
11: I, I think the most fundamental thing is there, there is a requirement to up-level posture. And what does that mean, up-level given posture? The, the, be thoughtful about the, the current geopolitical environment. Yeah and how the negative impacts could could impact them from a cyber point of view. So, you know, from Splunk's point of view, I think one of the things that we've taken action on is we have a very good um, private public partnership with the U.S. government. And it's really, we're able to operationalize that and positively impact the results of our customer's cyber posture. And so I think there's there's more to come on that. I think there's more that can be done Um, And I think that's a positive step in the right direction.
3: You know, we were just talking in the previous segment about China and China trade and everything that we saw up on Capitol Hill this week. I wonder, though, you know, this this potential for real tensions between the United States and China, but we just saw, we just went through this experience with Ukraine and Russia on the cyber side, and there were a lot of predictions of doom and gloom before that invasion that th- this would touch off, you know, sort of a cyber apocalypse that we'd see attacks on American companies, they'd shut down the stock exchange, that this could go, you know, kinetic and cyber and then cyber to kinetic. We didn't really see any of that, though. So one question for you is. Why not? And the second question for you is, in
11: a China context, do you think we would? You know, really interesting question. I spent a lot of time with chief information security officers, and that broad general concern is related to Russia and Ukraine, was present and it's present today, because no one really understands whether and when there might be broader fallout from a cyber point of view. As we see the tensions increase between China um, and the U.S., I think um, security leaders and companies today have the same concern, and so raising that caution that and that um, protection is super important. I don't think it. I think it's frankly impossible to predict what will ultimately happen, and so it it's incumbent upon the industry and and organizations to continue to better secure their organizations and make the investments necessary to um, protect their end customers.
3: Yeah. Ominous times out there. Gary Steele, thank you so much for your insights tonight. Really appreciate it. A lot to watch there in the cybersecurity space. Tomorrow, we're going to continue this conversation and do a deep dive on all things cyber. We hope you'll join us at 6 p.m. That does it for us. Shark Tank coming up right now.